This morning we're going to look at uh, a genealogy, and I've called it Ancestry.Bible, because it matters that we have these genealogies in the Bible, and this particular one reminds us that there is a lineage to redemption, that redemption has a human connection, and that we have to keep that in mind when we read a genealogy. But if we don't have that in mind, then it can just be a number of uh, names and uh, ages and stuff that really is confusing to us. I suspect that most of us could count on one hand how many sermons we've ever heard on a genealogy. They're not the stuff of a great attraction and draw of crowds, not that we preach to attract or draw crowds, but we do want people to say, well, I, I got something from that today. Um, they're easy to skip over, but they're still part of the inspired word of God. There are some here that uh, really enjoy genealogical work, and they have spent time with their family and other Uh, people who give them information, tracing their human lineage back in history. They want to know where they came from. They want to know who was in their family. They want to know something of the history. Some want to know about their genealogy for genetics and um, certain diseases and stuff that may be coming back in their family. But they're rooted in real history and a desire to connect with that real history. But for many of us, we just are happy to know our mom and dad and our brothers and sisters. But when you come to the Bible, uh, we're always... I think when you have a reading plan, you're looking for some way to read encouragement or have God speak to your heart. There's stuff that you have in the day coming and you're aware of it and you think, God, I need wisdom. I need help. I need to uh, hear you speak to me. And so you take your Bible and you open it and you're at Genesis 5-1 and you begin reading. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. You might say to yourself, well, that's not what I was hoping for. I've only got five more minutes, and God, I need to hear from you. So you keep reading. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 850 years and had other sons and daughters. And you pause and you remind yourself all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching and rebuke and training in righteousness. So you might say to yourself, okay, There's got to be some prophet here. I'll keep reading. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the sons of Mahalalel were, or all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had only other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now what? Kids, get in the car. We got to get going. We're late. <laughs> what do you make of a genealogy when you read it in the Bible? How do you sort it out? Uh, in fact, we're going to spend two weeks on this particular genealogy. I think this is where it matters that we have started in the beginning of the Bible at Genesis chapter 1 and are beginning to wrap our heads around the beginning of everything. We've been saying again and again that when God created the heavens and the earth and placed man and woman on the earth, what he had created was a theater of redemption. He had created a, 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 a stage, so to speak, where he could begin to display the wonders of his grace and his mercy and his judgment in a way that we would have never seen had he not created such a world in the way that he did. And we find out about that theater, or the, about that story of redemption when we turn to the scriptures. And it's the scriptures that reveal to us this great story of redemption. They are the stage play, so to speak, that men and women are acting out or living out. The Bible reveals to us this unfolding drama of redemption. The other thing to keep in mind as we work through this and are trying to attach genealogies and understand their place in the Bible, not only are they in the lineage of redemption, but they are tied directly to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. All of the, the, the genealogies in the Bible actually work their way back to Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As I've said, this verse sets the stage for all of human history. And what this promise is saying is that God will bring a redeemer, a human redeemer, who will crush and destroy finally and fully Satan or the serpent and all of his influence and his work in the world. And so all the genealogies take us back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a redeemer who would save us from our sins. And we've talked about this, and a little bit of this is repetitive, but it's helpful to just remind us of this, that in humankind, there are only two families, only two communities. There is the community of, of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and there is the community of the woman or the offspring of the woman. There are only two communities in all of human history. And we've been talking about how Cain and Abel introduce us to those two communities and how they go in two completely different directions. Behind these two communities and behind physical material reality is a whole spiritual realm. And we see this spiritual realm beginning to be worked out when it says, in the beginning, God. Well, who is God? Well, we can't see him, but we know God is spirit. We know that God exists and we also were introduced in the garden to the serpent, who Revelation tells us is Satan, the great red dragon. And so behind this physical world in which we live, behind these two humanities, is a physical reality that is working itself out also on this stage of human history or on this line of redemption. 
and there is a battle taking place between these two humanities, which is a physical battle, but also a spiritual battle. And I mentioned last or a couple weeks ago how Cain and Abel were the first introduction to the battle between these two communities. How Cain was of the evil one and Abel was of the offspring of the woman and how this, this animosity, this enmity was first worked out between those two and then is worked out through all of human history. There is enmity between these two communities. And you can see this worked out uh, certainly through uh, the, the line of Cain and uh, the, the offspring of the serpent against the offspring of the woman. For instance, we, we see that next worked out in the flood. And before the flood, as we go into the flood, this promise of God in Genesis 3.15 of a human redeemer is hanging by a thread in one family and tied to one man, Noah. And Noah survives the flood. God preserves him through the flood. The line from the woman will continue now longer. But then we come to the, uh, the, the, the children of Israel and how they were threatened as they were 12 sons of one father living in Canaan and a famine came and they were all at risk of dying. The seed of the woman was at risk of dying and they were saved through the miraculous providence of God as through Joseph, God brought them to Egypt and they settled in Egypt. Well, what happened in Egypt? They were enslaved. And then at one point, there was this command from Pharaoh, kill every baby boy so that there could not be an offspring of the woman. And then we come to the story of Goliath, a serpent figure who wanted to destroy Israel. And then we come to the, the account of, of Esther and Mordecai and Haman who had an edict and he wanted to destroy every single Israelite, destroy the offspring of the woman. And how God, through miraculous circumstances, through Esther and Mordecai, saved and delivered his people. And then you see how the people of God are attacked again and again and again till they come to the New Testament. What do we happen in the New Testament when Jesus is born? Herod wants to kill, goes out and kills every boy two years and under. Why? To destroy the line of the offspring of the woman. And so this is worked out on the stage of human history, this battle between these two offsprings. And so where do the lineages will come in? Well, the lineages come in because God said, I will send a deliverer from the offspring of the woman. And these lineages keep taking us back to Mary again and again and again. Follow the lineage and you follow it ahead and you find a person and you bring it back and it takes us back to Adam. And you come to the end of the Hebrew Bible and you come to um, the book of Chronicles. Chronicles is what ends the Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text. And it's the book of Chronicles. The first nine chapters of Chronicles are all genealogies, names. And they're actually rooting people in history. They're saying these people really lived in time and space. These people really lived on earth. And, and Chronicles begins by tracing the same genealogy back to the one that we just read. In other words, it's tying the people of Israel that had lived now through the ages of Chronicles all the way back to Noah, all the way back to Seth, all the way back to Adam. And then you come to Matthew chapter 1, and what's the very first chapter of the New Testament? It's a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it takes, uh, the very last line is Joseph, the husband of Mary, gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. 
It's a unique conception, and we've talked about this over the years, that, he was, that the baby that was conceived in her was there by the Holy Spirit. It was a divine work of God to combine the nature of God with the nature of man. It was a unique person. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And he will be a unique person in the sense that, or with a mission, that he will save his people from their sins. And so it's not by mistake that Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ that traces it all the way back to David, all the way back to uh, Abraham, and which connects it all the way back to Seth and Adam, and finally to the Son of God. So genealogies matter because they root the promises of God in history. They say these are real people. This is the work of God against all odds, against all the oppression, against all the enmity. God has a man who will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3, 15. And so when you read a genealogy, one of the things you can ask yourself is will the people in this list, in this family, carry on the family lineage that will lead to the ultimate deliverer who will decisively defeat the serpent and all the effects of sin? That's why genealogies in the Bible matter. Does God keep his word? Will God send a human deliverer to redeem his people from their sins? There's a couple of things about this genealogy that I just want to throw out there quickly and then settle in on one particular phrase. We've talked about the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Cain is the offspring of the serpent. Seth is the offspring of the woman. As we looked at the line of Cain, they're characterized by the rejection of God. It might not be a conscious one, but they live away from the presence of God. They live outside the presence of God. They live without an awareness of God. There's no desire in that community to connect with God. Some of it's passive, some of it's aggressive towards God. But we read about how sin increased and multiplied in that particular line. And then we talked about the godly line of Seth, which we introduced last week and which is introduced here. And you see a completely different focus in their living. In the line of, of Cain, there, we talked about cities and about technology and about culture and about music and about the spread of sin. That's what characterized them. That's what they were known about. That's who that one community um, is understood by. But then you come to the line of Seth, and what do we read here? Nothing of technology, nothing of community, nothing of cities, um, nothing of culture. You read about a way of walking with God. Enoch walked with God. They're reminded that they were made in the image of God, male and female. We read of, uh, of Lamech, who had a hope that God would free people from the curse that, that they were fallen under because of sin. We read of um, um, uh, Eve, when uh, Seth was born, how she believed that Seth would be the fulfillment of the promise. In other words, that community's orientation is towards God. It's towards knowing God and walking with God and believing God's word and trusting in his promises. Two very different humanities. The humanity of Seth is characterized by seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. It's not that cities and culture and music and technology don't matter. It's that God matters more and the kingdom of God matters more. Finally, and we'll say a little bit more in a, in a couple of weeks on this, but when you read a genealogy, and particularly, well, anyone, but when you read them, these are real people in real time, in real history. 
These aren't just a bunch of names that are thrown together to make a great story. Just like you trace your own human genealogy back, you are looking for real people who really lived on this earth and you're connecting yourself with them. So it is of these particular genealogies. These are real records tracing all the way back to Adam. Second, the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 are are unique, particularly in the line of Seth, because they give us ages of the father at the birth of their first child and the ages of the father at the death when they die. There's there's an important thing being said here. After Abraham, you can connect people to times and places in history. Ages aren't that important. But when you go before Abraham and certainly before the flood, there are no records that you can attach people specifically to a time and a place. And so God in his wisdom has given us their ages. And I believe these to be true and correct. So these are unique genealogies. So all of that for genealogies now. Let's move into actually some of the things that are said here. There's a phrase, a single phrase. You might have heard it. Over and over again, verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31, and then of Noah in chapter 9, verse 29, and he died. Genealogy is about life. Reality is about death. And he died. It's not a positive thing, but it's a very real part of our world. And so I want to take just a few minutes and say four things about death. None of them are maybe a surprise to you, but it's important that we think about these things. First of all, we all will die. Don't pass over this. We're meant to feel the force of this by the repetition of it again and again and again. We are meant to feel the weight of this reality we will all die. It's God's reminder to us to anticipate that day, to think of that day, to work it through in our heads. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, there be some of you who stand today like a man on the shore when the tide is swelling towards his feet. There came one wave and it took away his grandmother. Another came and a mother was swept away. Another came, and the wife was taken, and now it dashes at your feet. How long shall it be ere it breaks over you, and you, too, are carried away by the yawning wave into the bosom of the deep of death? Christ, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, prepare to meet your God. And we don't always die full of years. We want that to be true, but we know that not to be true. One of the things that we often did as a family, and it might be morbid, but we would take our boys and we would walk through cemeteries. And we would just read the tombstones. And we would read, oh, this one lived to be, and we'd calculate the age. Oh, this one's 92. And then we'd come across one, oh, this one was three days old. And everything in between. We don't all die full of years. Jim Elliott, who himself was killed at a young age while doing missionary work among the Hudam Indian said, God is peopling heaven. Why should he limit himself to old people? There's terrible grief from death at any time. Whether there's somebody who has lived full years or whether there's a baby who dies in their mother's womb. 
Why, indeed, if the Almighty wants to reach down and take one of his little lambs, or if he wishes to take a servant in the prime of life, he has that right. We think it cruel only because we cannot see behind the dark curtain. Even in death, there's a need for great trust in God. We might not like it. We might not understand it. But will we not trust God with the loved one whom he has taken home? So we will all die. Secondly, why do we die? Sin is the ultimate cause of death. Death is the ultimate judgment for sin. The result of, our, of Adam's sin and the result of our own sin. When God spoke to Adam in the garden, it was a perfect garden. And he said to Adam, and the Lord said to, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul explains the universal reign of death by taking us all the way back to Adam. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, original sin, and death through sin, in this way death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Death is the result of sin. We have a sinful nature, and we have committed acts of sin, which the wages of sin is death. Death is not something we want to think about. I could have taken the Orange Bridge route and turned home this morning. But death is a reality. Often before a funeral, once in a, well, once in a while before a funeral, I will quote from Ecclesiastes. Better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why? Because in a house of mourning, you are struck with the reality of life. You are struck with the reality that you will one day face. And you have to think about it, even though you don't like to think about it. You have to work it through, even though you don't want to work it through. You go to a house of feasting, and it's just a party. You can ignore all the heavy things, all the dark things, all the difficult things. You can eat lots of food. You can drink lots of wine. You can tell lots of jokes. You can have a great time. You don't have to think seriously about what matters most in life. But we need to consider death. Three kinds of death. I'll say these as quickly as there's physical death. We will all physically die one day. We will cease to breathe. It's the cessation of physical life. That is what we will all face. But the Bible also talks about spiritual death. You can be physically alive and spiritually dead. And I think that's what we realize when we come to uh, Adam in the garden. At the moment he ate the fruit, he died spiritually, but it would be 930 years until he would die physically. So there is a difference between physical life and spiritual life. And the Bible in, in Ephesians, Paul talks there, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. The wages of sin is death, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air and the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, even when we were dead in our trespasses. This is illustrated again and again and again. Man in rebellion to God, man with no feeling towards God, man with no conscience towards God, the line of Cain, they went out of the presence of God. 
So there's physical death. There is spiritual death. You can be alive physically, but dead spiritually. But if you die physically, while you are dead spiritually, then the outcome is eternal death. And the Bible speaks about eternal death as being separated forever, eternally, from the presence of God. Revelation speaks of it as the second death. Those are the three kinds of death in the Bible. There are also three kinds of life in the Bible. Physical life. We all know that. All of us sitting here today have physical life. We have breath in our lungs. It is breath that is held in the hand of God. God sustains us physically in life. And so as we live, we worship him and we glorify him and we enjoy him. And he has set us in this world in such a way that in our physical life, we can come to know spiritual life. I'd encourage you to read Acts 17. We don't have time today, but there, God clearly sets us everywhere in this world throughout history, specifically so that we might find God. He is near to us. But then there is spiritual life. And again, you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Well, this is what we mean when we talk about being born again. And the Bible says you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. There must be, just like we are born physically to enter into physical life, we must be born spiritually to enter into spiritual life. And it is a work of the Spirit of God where he takes we who are dead in our sins and trespasses and makes us alive in Christ as we look to him for salvation. And God grants us spiritual life. And then there is eternal life. This is the future of all who are spiritually alive when they die physically. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life everlasting. Life in the presence of God. Life in the fullness of God. So that just as when sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign in righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life and this life in his son. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25, 26, And they will go away, some into eternal punishment and others into eternal life. So there is death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal life, or eternal death. And there is physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. There's a book that is going to be in our library soon, One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer. I've been reading it over the last number of months. He writes in there, I'm told there is a cemetery in Indiana that has an old, on an old tombstone this epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you now are, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby supposedly read those words and underneath it scratched this reply. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) I don't think there's anything more important for us to consider while we have physical life 
than what will happen to us when we die. Two destinations. Many of us have taken vacations that we have planned for months and sometimes even years for. We get the destination in mind and then we begin to get airfares and we begin to book cars and we begin to book bed and breakfasts or hotels. We begin to put uh, tours that we're going to take when we're on those vacations. We spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars planning that vacation. What kind of effort in planning do we put into reaching our heavenly, eternal destination? It matters that we think about eternity. It matters that we sit down with pen and paper and write out what it is and how do we get there. Map out a path laid out for us in Scripture. Know this, that our eternal destination is set while we have physical life. May God help us to think about this and take it seriously. Thirdly, death is a gift of grace. Follow me just a little bit as I work through this. I can't remember the book. I've got it on my shelf. I can picture it. I can't remember the title, but imagine being flawed, or imagine being your flawed self without time. Think about your temper, your resentfulness, your lust, your lies, your selfishness, your despair. Think about all the trouble that you have on the inside. Think about the weight of that burden. Now remove time. There is no end to this race. There is no finish line. You must struggle with that temper always, forever. You will be 700 years old, still lusting, a lusting leecher, weeping with guilt, a thousand-year-old woman who can't stop her poisonous tongue. In the ancient myths, Tartus is where the rebel titans were tortured forever. When they struggle to or, or where they struggle to complete their tasks without any end, without any completion. Without death, without mortal time, this earth would be Tartarus. Mortality is a consequence of sin, or mortality is a consequence of sin, but it is also a gift, a mercy, a kindness, a grace. A fallen and corrupt human race with no end, dark burdens with no finish, no, because of death, we can run the good race, we can fight the good fight, completion exists. 70 years, 80 if you're strong, less if you're like the Messiah. Look to him and receive more grace. Stagger on, you can do it. Only a decade more or two or four, but there is a finish line. There will be an end to the weight on your back and the ache in your skull. This place is no Tartarus. God is not Scrooge. He gives without ceasing. Even when we fell, when our first parents, first parents defiled him, the thing he gave them was an end. Mortality, a path to resurrection, and the promise of a guide. And then he clothed them. Death is a grace. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. It's a grace because when we die, we are then forever with Christ. 
So death is a grace. And the final point, he died. Who? Christ. Jesus Christ died so we don't have to die. For three decades, Jesus lived on this earth. He ran towards death, and when he reached it, and he said, it is finished. Donald Greyhouse or Donald Gray Barnhouse was on his way home from a funeral, from the funeral of his first wife. And he was trying to think of some way of comforting his children. Just then, he notes that a huge moving van passed their car and its shadow swept over them. Instantly, Barnhouse asked children, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? The children replied, of course, we would preferred the shadow. To which Barnhouse replied, 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus Christ. Now only the shadow of death can run over us. This is one of the greatest truths you can come to know as a human being. Jesus Christ died so that we might live. Jesus Christ bore the weight of our sins, the ache in our skull, the burdens that we bear. He bore the penalty for our sin, death, so that we only feel its shadow. As we gather around this table this morning, those of you who know Christ is your Savior, there should be a skip in your step. There should be a rejoicing in your heart. Death, where is your sting? It's been removed by Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've not committed to him, the Bible says, look to him and you will be saved. Believe on his name and he will give you eternal life. And you will not need to fear death. And you too will only experience its shadow. Father in heaven, Thank you for this reminder in your word about something that we don't really like to talk about or think about. But we have to. And if we have to think about it, then we ought to think about it rightly. And your word shows us how to think about it rightly. I rejoice with so many others here this morning that we know that we will only experience the shadow of death but my heart aches for those who have yet to trust you with their lives, to trust you with their souls, to give up their fighting, to give up their rebellion, to leave off their anger, to look to Jesus and say, save me, give me life. Oh, Spirit of God, would you speak to all of our hearts in these next minutes, I pray in Christ's name, amen.